0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this
0: presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today we are recording... The latest in our occasional series of great strategists and great thinkers at the U.S. Army War College, we're going to discuss the work of Thomas Crombie Schelling, Nobel laureate and a giant in the field of strategic studies. And our guest today, Dr. Tammy Davis Biddle, who will help us understand Schelling's place in the history of strategic thought, as well as in the curriculum of national security here at the U.S. Army War College, is a professor in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. Biddle is a graduate of Lehigh with a doctorate from Yale. She is the author of, among other things, Rhetoric and Reality in Air Warfare, The Evolution of British and American Ideas About Strategic Bombing, as well as numerous essays, including most recently, Coercion Theory, A Basic Introduction for Practitioners, in the spring 2020 issue of the Texas National Security Review, an essay that will be particularly important for our discussion today. As both a renowned scholar of strategic studies and a celebrated teacher of the subject here at the U.S. Army War College, I can think of few people who are better equipped to come to talk to us about the work of Thomas Schelling and his role in the study of strategy. So welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Tammy Biddle. Thank you, Ron. I'm delighted to be here. So, Tammy, I want to start at the very beginning. So who was Thomas Schelling, and what are his important works?
1: Sure. Thomas Schelling is an economist. He was born in... Uh, 1921 so he would have turned 100 years old today Uh, he is a a bright young guy who has lots of interests he's he's seen the depression he wants to understand it so he turns to economics studies economics at Berkeley uh, and then goes on and does uh, a doctorate at Harvard uh, works um, administering the Marshall Plan for a couple of years uh, but then uh, gets his doctorate at Harvard in 1951, goes on to Yale in 1953, spends a few years there, and then in 1958 goes back to Harvard as a full professor of economics, where he then spends 32 years uh, studying really a, a wide variety of things. But of course, the the issue that he was pulled into in the 1950s and 60s was the key issue of the day for lots of smart people, which was how to deal with the nuclear dilemma mm-hmm. and the Cold War. And how do we think about it? And how do we make decisions about the use of nuclear weapons or war fighting with nuclear weapons? So he sets his mind to that till later study many other things, uh, white flight out of urban areas, he'll study addictive behavior, he'll study decision-making of all kinds, like many economists. But in this early period uh, in his career, he was really interested in this central issue of the use of violence. And he becomes a powerful, insightful thinker with regard to the use of state Sanctioned violence for the achieving of political ends. Uh, And he makes a huge contribution on that front that has been picked up by other scholars and has been uh, developed further and used for research and research design and further study. And so he's just been, he really was a giant in the field. And he wrote a book and he, he wrote strategy of conflict early and then he kept thinking about issues of conflict and, and war and wrote, uh, I think, an even more important book in 1966 called Arms and Influence. And the title is important because he's really writing about the way that uh, weapon systems and the potential for violence give you influence. And he created this system of thinking about uh, the use of force, which I think is so helpful to us and, and helps us understand the logic of basically of, of, of how we utilize force, how we think about it. And this is, of course, why it's so important to national security professionals and military professionals. But basically, he said, look, if you're going to use force, there are going to be two ways or, or power military power, there are two ways you can, you can go about it. One is brute force, which was a term that he used to basically say strength on strength. You will match your strength against your opponent's strength. And at the end of the day, your opponent really has, uh, you're not giving your opponent an opportunity to cooperate. You're just imposing your own power. The other option that you have is coercion. And with coercion, you're using threats, the threat of force, the threat of punishment, the threat of violence, to uh, structure the enemy's incentives. So the enemy, at the end of the day, has to cooperate with you. Uh, it's not happy cooperation. It's mm-hmm. the sort of cooperation that comes after lots of arm twisting. But what you're doing is you're structuring that that enemy's incentives by saying, if I do this or... or Or if I threaten this, I will either compel you or deter you, deter you from doing something or compel you to do something. Hmm. So to deter is to keep, is to prevent, Use issue a threat to prevent an enemy from doing something that you don't want him to do. And to compel is to use threats to force an enemy to do something that they probably don't want to do or to cause them to cease something they've already started. Hmm. So there are two subsets under this heading of coercion, and we all know about deterrence. That word has been around for a long time. It's in our lexicon, and it was such a prominent word during the Cold War and during the nuclear era uh, because we thought constantly in terms of nuclear deterrence. But that was just one category. This category of compellence is quite important, too. And, of course, it's one that we use all the time. Um, The very existence of military organizations is quite an explicit threat. Military organizations don't always think of themselves this way, but the fact that they're there makes any potential adversary that we have have to consider the consequences of their actions in very serious ways. Mm-hmm. You don't want to get up the nose of the United States too much, or you might find American air power uh, in your neighborhood right. or the Marines landing on a beach um, or the Navy uh, making life difficult for you. So well, at, at, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ron.
0: <clears throat> no, I would, I, this is this is very good because I, um, as the, our listeners should know, that when in our uh, core curriculum course for uh, students at the War College, War Policy and National Security. We have put uh, coercion theory very high up on the things that we want people to learn and to understand. And there's an element of this, especially the distinction between um, coercion and brute force, That, uh, and that is communication, that I can't yes. deter you unless you unless you know what I'm trying to deter you from doing. And I can't coerce you unless you know what I want to coerce you to do. But that means I have to be in communication with my enemy. And that's not to put too fine a point on it, right? That's work, right? When you actually have to communicate with your enemy, as opposed to merely um, standing in the back with a big club and hoping he'll get the message.
1: Exactly. Exactly. do you,
0: when you teach this subject, um, how do you uh, impress upon students, right? This, this communicative element of coercion?
1: Sure. Well, it's the very center. And it's, it's the reason, I mean, one of the themes in Arms and Influence that runs throughout is that coercion, both brute force and coercion are very difficult for their own reasons, but Mm -hmm. they're very difficult. And the central reason that, that coercion is difficult is, as you said, Ron, it's all about communication. We're trying to communicate with an enemy, but we're doing it with Fairly blunt instruments. We're not really relying. Schelling calls this the uh, the diplomacy of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to communicate via violence is quite difficult, and it's it's more difficult than just sitting down in a room and talking to someone uh, in detail. So. There are many elements, many reasons why this is difficult, and I'll walk through a few of them. But one of the things that I that I do with students to help them understand this is I do a little exercise. And actually, my husband, Steve Biddle, invented this um, because he's, he's a big fan of Schelling and utilizer of Schelling's thought as well. And he came up with something called the Battle of the Pen, which he will often use with students, where he'll say, he'll hold up or he'll point to pen in the hand of of one of the students and he says you know that looks like a great pen and I would really love to have it so what are the ways that I could get it and the students sort of pause for a moment and think well uh you could you could make an offer you could try to pay for it and yeah sure economics brilliant way to, to to exchange things but but what about if if uh, this person doesn't want to sell it. And, and I really, really want it. Well, you could just grab it. And, and then of course that's, a, that's brute force. You just grab it. And, but the, the downside is, well, what if the person holding the pen is stronger than you are? Um, what if it turns into a big, long wrestling match? That's very bloody and unpleasant. Are you are you willing, how much do you really want that pen? And then they'll then we turn to are there other ways that might not be so risky or so long or maybe so bloody as as brute force and they say, "Well, you could make threats and so then either Steve or I, if I'm teaching, will say, well, what kinds of threats and this is where you really get to the communication aspect because you need to know the adversary what can you threaten that will be meaningful that is is a fear in the mind of of the adversary but is also credible that you could actually threaten credibly uh, this is hugely important, and since we spend a lot of time talking about credibility as an issue in, in international security and international affairs, but here, you know, the rubber really hits the road because if you're issuing threats and they're not credible, you're not going to get anywhere, and you're not going to achieve your political aim. So you have to think hard. You have to know. You have to know yourself. How strong am I? What kind of will do I have? Do I really, really want this pen badly? If I threaten something, uh, am I willing? Am I? prepared to carry that threat through? Do I, Am I prepared to signal something that I then partially act upon to signal my intentionality, to signal that I'm serious about this? So you have to think very hard about not only your adversary, but about yourself, about the stakes for you, about how valuable the political stake is at the end of the day, um, and that's that requires a great deal of intelligence about the adversary, and it great it requires a great deal of self knowledge as well. So this is where I see a a marvelous overlap with both Clausewitz, who talks about you know understand the stake, understand how the enemy values the stake, understand how you value the stake, and make your uh, violent action your violent uh, choices proportional to the value of the stake. And then of course,
0: yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, so in other words, don't threaten, uh, don't threaten to go all out for something that you are not that committed to.
1: Exactly. Don't, don't threaten, uh, to go all out for something you're not that committed to. And also don't, don't, Write checks that you can't cover. (laughs) If you don't have the money in the bank, don't don't write the checks. So so it's it's on multiple issues. You have to be very astute, and of course this is what sense is telling us as well. So in lots of ways, although probably not thinking about it explicitly, I doubt very much that that um, Schelling thought a great deal about senseu. But Tzu is telling us in his ancient writings: know yourself, know yourself, know the enemy. Understand what you want, understand what you're capable of, understand what you're willing to risk, what the enemy is willing to risk. And so there's a wonderful tie back to these theorists that we're studying really all at the same time. When we're doing uh, war uh, policy and national security, we are talking about all these folks really in the same first few weeks of the course. And so it's very exciting to be able to have these ideas overlap and reinforce one another uh, and help students understand uh, the nature of both brute force and and coercion, uh, and for them to really understand this language.
0: <clears throat> you know, related to this, uh, I was thinking about, you mentioned how you know, Schelling gets into thinking about strategy is drawn into the discussions about nuclear strategy, because that was the first thing that was on people's minds. Um, sure. For better or for worse, uh, while nuclear deterrence has gone on for a long time, um, no one 's had to fight a nuclear war. In fact, I was thinking of the quote and i can 't remember if it was Alan Eindhoven or another one of the whiz kids was in an argument with a general from the Strategic Air Command, and Eindhoven said, uh, "General, you and I have both fought exactly the same number of nuclear wars <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a sense that's very true right that there's no so you don 't have a lot of experience but But in the 60s, when Schelling was at his, uh, let's say, at his height as a strategic thinker and as a a policy intellectual, he was involved in discussing uh, how the use of force could signal, coerce, deter an enemy. And that was related to the air campaign in Vietnam. And I am curious, based on your research and our understanding of, of Schelling, is how well did his theories help to shape Uh, American strategy in Vietnam? And did his experience in dealing with that campaign change his ways of thinking about strategy at all?
1: You know, I, I think in lots of ways, what Schelling found was that he was right when he argued that this kind of communication in wartime is very difficult. You know, I think Schelling wanted to have some target sets that were going to be sort of held in reserve as and and to signal that those would be struck if if the enemy did not cooperate. First of all, it's very hard to, to send a signal like that really clearly to an enemy for a whole variety of reasons, not just because the enemy isn't thinking the way that you think and so may not see the point you're trying to make, but also, any strategy is going to get filtered through a variety of other things: uh, what the president wants, what the military forces can do, uh, how precise you can be in your in your targeting, um, the whole, all the noise of the media. Uh, so it's it becomes exceptionally difficult to have to sort of lay out in, in theory the way that you might in a in an academic book right. say that, say this is exactly what you should be thinking about and then to actually pull it off and this is always going to be a problem. so even if we understand the the theoretical aspects of something really well and and the reason we we use theory is to help us think through, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. It make, it sharpens our thinking, it sharpens our analytical skills. But I think Schelling found, uh, to the extent that he would argue his strategy was, was even employed, I think he would say, you know, by the time it, it makes it all the way into the stages of employment, it's pretty adulterated. So I, I wonder if he would even agree that it was, it was utilized fully. Um, but I think he would agree certainly that being able to, to signal fairly precise things about an escalatory chain or about the direction in which strategy is going to go to an adversary that, that is thinking quite differently and has a set of its own goals and its own things that it's attached to, ideas it's attached to, um, and is thinking quite distinctly about the problem, or or and d- differently than we are, uh, it can be exceedingly difficult to convey that. Um, and I think we found that in Vietnam. And and one of the things that we really did, and I I think this was everyone, amongst the 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 sort of youthful best and brightest who were serving under under both Kennedy and Johnson, was that they just sort of overestimated American capability and underestimated the will of the enemy. And again, this is something that Schelling and Sonsa and Clausewitz <laughs> would say, don't do. Um, but for reasons of our own self-perception and our own strength and our own sense of ourselves in the aftermath of the Second World War and our capability, and of course, owning SAC and thinking we are such a powerful state, we've got a million cores of tools uh, Vietnam is a tiny little, and of course, Lyndon Johnson said this, um, Vietnam is a tiny little state. How could they possibly not succumb to our coercive threats? Well, in fact, uh, they really ended up turning the tables on us. And by stretching out the war and raising, our, raising the pain threshold very high, uh, they coerced us rather than the other way around at the end of the day. Um So, you know, even a little state, if it's determined uh, to own a stake, and and we had plenty of evidence that this might be the case if we had paid a little bit more attention to uh, the war with the Vietnamese war with France. uh, I think we had lots of evidence that these folks are really determined and really committed, and they want to see uh, Vietnam unified, and they want all of the, what they would call the colonial intruders out, right, and we were just the latest in that list. Of course, it, we saw ourselves so differently,
0: right? Well, I mean, it, it it isn't it great that we learned that lesson in Vietnam, and oh, we have not made that mistake again. <laughs> We've
1: never made that mistake again. No, you know the other thing, Ron, about <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> about. Sorry no, sorry, no, no. it's it's so true. Schelling's influence is he he. Not a lot of people know this, but he writes a book review of um, a book called Red Alert. Uh, And it's in the early 1960s, and it's a book by RAF officer Peter George, and it becomes uh, Dr. Strangelove.
0: Right. Yes.
1: Yeah, (laughs) because Stanley Kubrick reads the review, is so taken by this book, Red Alert, that he thinks he can make it into a film. Um, but. You know, they find that that the, the material is is so strange and and so surreal at the end of the day that they're better off trying to do it as a black comedy uh, than as a straight up drama. And
0: so, Schelling wrote a review of Red Alert. I did not. Yes,
1: know that. he did. He wrote a review of Red Alert, and and uh, Stanley Kubrick read it and said, i I think I've got to make a film." And then uh, Schelling was an advisor. Uh, to Dr. Strangelove.
0: I did not know that. So literally he was, because I knew that, that Kubrick was famously did all this research and on everything and so read all these yeah. things. There's, yeah. a, there's, there's a famous passage in the Strategy of Conflict um, where uh, Schelling talks about surprise attack. And I'm glad you brought up Dr. Strangelove because I was thinking of this. Is He has a line here where he says that um, uh, a modest temptation on either side to sneak in the first blow might become compounded Through a process of interacting expectations with additional motive for attack being produced by successive cycles of he thinks, we think, he thinks, we think, he thinks, we think he'll attack. So he thinks we shall. So he will. So we must. And you read that, right? That's, that's both powerful and crazy. But very yes. accurate. Right. And, and so it's hard not to. And so that's what I, I think about this is when we try to teach these subjects, and it's one thing to say, right, nuclear, we- you know, with all the things you mentioned about knowing yourself, knowing your enemy, knowing the stakes, knowing what you're willing to spend, what you're willing to, you know, what you're willing to endure, that um, it's hard to imagine a conflict where nuclear using nuclear weapons makes sense, but at the same time, you have to spend all your time preparing for the possibility that it might. Exactly. How, how did Schelling resolve this? I mean, outside, he was aware of the surreality and of the even the absurdity, but it didn't stop him from trying to understand it. So, how did he resolve this? And how do you, in your study of air power and coercion, how do you think about these these gigantic questions? Sure.
1: Well, I'm I'm fascinated by this, and and I think this is probably what pulled me into the field. Not only, I I was a a child in the early Cold War and um, watched this adult world around me that I could not fathom. Um, Not only was I watching the Vietnam War on TV and assassinations throughout 1968, I was was aware of this nuclear dilemma. I guess I was an odd child. A child (laughs) at a young age was aware of all these things. But I was, and I wanted to make sense of it. I desperately wanted to. And so and when I got to college and I walked into a class taught by my first mentor, Professor Carrie Joint at Lehigh, uh, who was marvelous, um, I was just captured. And I I thought, wow, finally I've got a chance to understand this. And I wrote my dissertation on on deterrence theory. Um not dissertation, but my my senior thesis. It wasn't a dissertation yet. Um, later, I would write a dissertation. But I was captured by it. And I was so struck by how, and I've said this so often to our colleague, Ed Kaplan, who writes, who is really serious about this material and knows it inside and out. But, you know, if you look at nuclear theory just from a, a theoretical perspective and sort of look at it from the inside it makes great sense. There is a logic to it. There's a way of understanding it. Um, and and of course, you, know, you see all of that and you see that the way that we structured sa- strategic air command and the way that we uh, set up our forces and the triad to create redundancy and to make sure there was no uh, ability for the Soviets to gain a first strike capability um, because we needed to have uh, basically mutually assured destruction. And yet, if you step even a millimeter outside of that, it looks crazy. And this is why Dr. Strangelove is so powerful, because it's operating on both levels. It's operating on, you know, the professional, we have to, we have to work inside this world because this is the world we've created and we have to have military responsibility for it. And then the folks who are just like a millimeter outside of it and trying to comprehend it. Uh, like the the poor group Captain, um, one of Peter <laughs> Seller's many roles. and even the president, when the president gets involved in trying to understand all of this, he's he's realizing just how crazy it is. So it's it's simultaneous for, for nuclear weapons, um, we've got this operating on two levels. But the thing is, we created this world we created nuclear weapons. And so you couldn't then uncreate them. You couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. You had to then have a military structure that would deter. And so, and in order to deter, you have to be capable of war fighting. So you have to build plans. You have to build structures. Uh, you have to have a strategic air command that's on high alert. You have to have a national airborne uh, command system in case, you know, there is a war, you have to be able to get the president up into the air so he can be safe and make calls about what to do next. Even though it's hard to fathom what any human being would be thinking once nuclear bombs started dropping on his or her country. But nonetheless, you still have to go through this kabuki dance. You still have to have this, and you still have to drill yourself so that you can carry it out. This is what we were teaching our bomber pilots and our missileers for so many years and our submariners. This is the drill you will follow. This is the pattern you will follow um, in the event that we have to fight this kind of a war. But it is hard to fathom, you know, if you think to yourself... You know what? What would the president, any president, have done if, you know, at two in the morning he was awakened or she was awakened by a call from the Secretary of Defense saying, "Mr. President, we've got satellite tracings of a launch. What would you like to do?"
0: And and by the way, you have you have seven and a half minutes to make a decision. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and this is where I think about with people with a person like Shelling, right? To think of. I, I, all the time you we were talking, I was also thinking of of General Turgidson and Dr. Strangelove. Mr. President, I'm not saying we won't get our hair must, right. but I think we can get by with no no more than ten to twenty million killed that wow. that people have to think that way or that they've they're in a situation where they have to think that way. And that for somebody like Thomas Schelling, an economist, um this is a we're we're getting near the end, and I wanted to to bring this back around as you know, uh, I'm a historian. you're a you're a historian. Um, Schelling was an economist and there were a lot of economists involved in the development of strategic theory and development of nuclear deterrence in a lot of the think tanks. How do you, how well do you think uh, strategic thought and, and the, the, the teaching and the study of strategic thought bridges the gap between the sort of the, the, uh, cold rationality of numbers and these human questions that you've raised about you know how do we understand what a president would feel how do we understand the the human element of decision making do you think we understand that well enough um or do you think that's something that we still have to struggle with to to bridge the gap between cold rationality and humanity
1: oh i'm i think it's terribly important to understand human behavior from an economic economics perspective, the perspective of an economist, but also from the perspective of a psychologist, of a sociologist, of a political scientist. All of these are important. And fortunately, we've had so many contributions to the field since Schelling that mm-hmm. we've got a much more nuanced and better understanding of how to think through coercion theory. Um, so people like Bob Jervis at Columbia have made huge contributions, Robert Jervis, uh, in helping us understand misperception and miscommunication and what an immense role that plays often in war. And that helps us really realize that we have to kind of figure that into our strategy and have backup mechanisms and, and ways to get ourselves back on track if we find that we are miscommunicating, if our strategy goes awry, and of course, as I said, with, with Schelling learning that bureaucracy can impede the pure implementation of strategy, which of course it can, mm. misperception does as well. And then of course there's human psychology. And I, I begin teaching my students always, uh, because I'm a, I'm a great devotee and 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 um student of of, of Jervis's work that you have to think in terms of human psychology. You have to understand that we, we see what we what we expect to see. We see what we want to see. We have filters on all the time. We're not objective observers of our surroundings. And you have to start with that assumption with respect to human beings For as you look at yourself and as you look at your enemy mm-hmm. uh, and realize that that is always going to be the case. That is a constant. So I think the, the work that's come uh, after Schelling and his, his added nuance has been really important. Um, and in, of course, Schelling wasn't working alone. He was mm-hmm. working, he was resting ideas on the ideas of, of David Singer, Glenn Snyder, William Kaufman. I think in this period of great intellectual ferment, there was a lot of activity, intellectual activity going on, and they were sharing ideas with one another. Um, Schelling is the one who wrote arms and influence and kind of is the one that we now remember, but all of these folks were playing important roles. Uh, And so there is a lot of influence of of other fields now in Schelling's, what was originally Schelling's oeuvre, but is now a a widely shared uh, body of work in national security studies. So many scholars working on the civilian side of things work on a foundational basis, which is really shelling, and then build up from there to better understand when does deterrence work? When does compellence work? When does it fail? Why does it fail? Uh, how do we understand escalation dominance, which is terribly important? Being able to match an enemy as you're climbing that escalatory ladder in, in terms of threats, one side threatening and the other counter threatening. How do you move up that ladder and of course, as i point out in the in the essay that i wrote it's terribly important to have land power because sub at the subnuclear level land power is at the very top of that escalation ladder uh you want to have land power to issue those major threats which are basically you know if you don't cooperate with me i will land on your shores uh take over uh re- remove you as the government and replace the government with something that is far more congenial to me. That is a supreme threat. And any power that wants to consider itself a great power has to be able to have some of that. Um, so that, that's one of the reasons that you know we understand land power to be actually quite important. Although sometimes it's been hard for folks to articulate why land power is important. I think if you turn to shelling, you see very quickly uh, in fact, why it's very important to have land power. Um, but I uh, to come back to your original point, Ron. Yes, sure. I think sure. human psychology is so important. You can't simply do this in some sort of cold, isolated, theoretical way that doesn't speak at the same time to human nature. Uh, and you know, to tie in Thucydides, which I love to do. There you go. <laughs> we study Thucydides at the beginning of the course, and and we're studying human nature that has stayed consistent for you know thousands of years and and we we now see i i love our students seeing how familiar Thucydides is to them as they understand that terrible war in the greek world and understand uh, why it uh, followed the course that it the tragic course that it followed but so much of it, so much of the emotional side, the human side, is immediately familiar to them. Uh, and so, the, and they, they learn right from the beginning that there are things that remain constant. And that constant stuff is really about human beings and, and how we think and how we behave and how we are captured by fear, honor, and interest um, and humiliation, which is kind of the combination of fear, honor, and interest. And humiliation is a very powerful motive for. People wanting to turn to violence, um, so all these things tie together. And uh, as faculty members, I think we do the very best job we can to bring them all uh, to the students, to the students' plates, and say, "Look, here's this incredible feast. <laughs> Have at it.
0: <laughs> Dig in." Well, and and Tammy, you know, as as someone who has been. Uh, so good at this for so long here at the War College. I know that your students uh, especially know how how powerful experience it can be to learn these uh, these important uh, these important insights from someone who cares as much as you do, who knows as much as you do, and who does as much as you do. And so uh, on behalf of the War College uh, and and on behalf of A Better Peace, I want to thank you for being with us today. Unfortunately, we're at the end of this conversation, but thanks so much for your insights on shelling and strategy in your own work.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. I've been delighted to be here and to have a chance to talk about shelling.
0: You bet. And, and thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always happy to hear from you. Please uh, subscribe to A Better Piece if you have not already done so on the podcatcher of your choice. And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast so that others may find it as well so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like the one you've just heard today. Uh, this conversation is over. But the conversations continue. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.